Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 12 of Authors on a Podcast Talking Books. I'm your host, David Walters. Today I have the pleasure of chatting with author Mike Chen. Mike is a lifelong writer from crafting fan fiction as a child to somehow getting paid for words as an adult. He has contributed to major geek culture websites like the Mary Sue and the Portalist. He's covered the NHL for mainstream media outlets and ghostwritten corporate articles appearing in Forbes, BuzzFeed, Entrepreneur, and many more. He's a member of the SFWA and the Codex Writers Group. He calls San Francisco Bay Area home where you can often be found playing video games and watching Doctor Who with his wife, daughter, and rescue animals. But without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, Mike Chen. Hello. Thanks for having me. Hey, absolutely. Thank you so much for being on. How are you doing today? Pretty good. Pretty good. Good, good. I know uh, off air you're saying that you just got in from, uh, I guess, from carpool. Yeah, yeah, picking up my daughter from preschool and drop and navigating the Bay Area traffic where you it takes thirty minutes to go a mile and a half. So yeah, I uh, I don't envy you at all. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lifestyle out here, right? Right. I mean, I I can imagine the weather's beautiful, but the traffic is not. So uh, we, you know, I'm I'm over in Alabama, so you never really know what the next day's weather is going to look like. But you know, you don't have quite as bad traffic. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, cool. Uh, well, first off, thank you so much for for coming on. Uh, I know uh, we I've been going back and forth with uh, with Justine over at Harper, uh, trying to get this kind of scheduled up uh, after getting your new book and beginning at the end, uh, which is a fantastic novel. If anybody uh, has gotten to it, I know uh, my co blogger Jason uh, read it and reviewed it a little while back, and I actually just finished it today. Uh, prior to the recording, so pretty fresh in the mind. If you want to chat about it a little bit later, oh great, yeah, yeah. Let's uh, let's talk about that. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so first off, um, tell me a little bit about yourself. Growing up, uh, kind of you know going through school uh, and kind of what your hobbies were growing up. Uh, I I think well, video games. <laughs> I played a lot of video games. Uh, I, I was a, a Sega Genesis kid. And uh, so if you'll follow me on Twitter, uh, there are some other classic gaming um, writers out there that are always talking about Super Nintendo. And I just run right in there and I say, no, no, no. Sega Genesis was where I was at. <laughs> um, but in terms of, of writing, I uh, actually drawing was probably my first love when I was a kid. Um, but I, I drew a lot of my own comic strips when I was a kid. Um, and I did a lot of, uh, fan fiction-y comic strips. Um, in addition to just trying to draw pictures of Transformers and, and Star Wars and other stuff that I loved. Um, but that was probably my first, my first real, um, attempt at like telling the narrative was, uh, drawing comic strips, um. And then in, in high school, I, I remember like getting various writing projects and just feeling like I got it. Like I understood, um, I guess, uh, finding a voice and it came very naturally to me. So, uh, those were kind of like the early roots of it. Okay. Um, so I was reading a little bit on your website, uh, that you had a dream growing up that you either wanted to be a pilot of an X-wing fighter or a Veritech fighter. So which of those still holds true today? <laughs> well, uh, Veritex turn into, you know, the, uh, if, for people who don't know, Veritech is from uh, Robotech. So it's a, it has three transformational modes. It, it looks like an F-14 Tomcat to start, and then you can add the super armor on top of it that loads it with missiles and booster. Um, 
And then it has guardian mode, which kind of looks like a bird, like these legs kick down and then the arms go out. So you, you have the maneuverability of, of a jet. Actually, it's more kind of like a helicopter. It's like got the speed of a jet, but it can hover and it also has arms. Or it's got battleoid mode, which is a hu- totally humanoid figure, which you know you could like fight aliens and climb shit and stuff like that. <laughs> um, X-wing is my favorite ship of all time. Like uh, when the '90s computer game X-wing came out, that was basically like my dream. And if that game could be um, updated graphically and put into a VR headset, that would be like my ultimate gaming experience. So it's hard to say but i think like from a purely functional perspective i would rather fly a you know a mech uh, a jet that can turn into you know different things just from a like i can do way more cool shit with this um <laughs> but if i was just gonna take photos of myself and something it would definitely be in the next week right right I, mean, I feel like that's just a super nostalgic thing is that you know kind of like uh I, I don't know if you I'm sure you know who Ernest Klein is, but Ready Player One, you know, kind of like when he got his DeLorean, it's kind of yeah. like, it's kind of like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe it, you know, and, and, but yeah, I, I kind of agree about the, about the Veritech. I, I would want something that I could do more in than just fly it. <laughs> yeah. So if it's like, if this is the real world and you have a transforming mech that you can pilot or you can have just like the coolest ship around, I'm a very practical person, so I would go with the transforming mech because, you know, you could do shit as a, you know, as a walking mega human, basically. Right. <laughs> yeah, because uh, I was looking at pictures because I wasn't too familiar with what it was. It, it kind of reminds me, I guess, of like a little bit kind of like Gundam Wing uh, meets, yeah. um, I don't even know what, what you would say it meets, maybe Transformers somewhat. It, there was um, there was actually a transformer called uh, uh, Jetfire, which okay. was the the Veritech. Uh, it was the 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 manufacturing model of the Veritech because they had licensed it from the original Japanese um, production studio at the time. Okay. And then there was like this weird copyright battle between it. But if you uh, if you Google Jetfire Transformers, like the original toy, it is the uh, uh, it is from the Robotech anime, like the original source anime. It is their the fighter. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. As soon as you put it in, boom, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, awesome. Um, so we talked a, a little bit off air uh, about Star Wars, obviously X-Wing fighter stars. Um, but I, I wanted to ask you, did you see today, uh, I think it was, I can't remember if it was GameSpot or I can't remember which outlet it was, but they have a life-size 16-inch uh, child statue that you can buy for like 350 bucks did you see that i, I did that i'm not surprised that they're monetizing the crap out of that <laughs> <laughs> i mean anything that can, that you can make with the child on it it's probably going to be purchased right yeah yeah exactly I, so my daughter is five um and we have just started showing her the films um so we haven't shown her the mandalorian yet though my wife actually talked about it because in terms of like the the level of violence in there um, is not that bad, right? Um, so and then obviously Baby Yoda is is freaking adorable. We we're staying away from it mostly because of spoilers. Mm. I think within um, like we're pacing the movies at like maybe one every two months or so. 
So once we get through those, and um, then we could probably move on to the Mandalorian when she's like six, six and a half, something like that. <laughs> um, but it's we we have thought this out a lot. Um, let me tell you about our Star Wars viewing plan. <laughs> yeah, please tell me that. <laughs> okay. Is this like we seriously have huge discussions about this because it's it's clearly very important to both of us. When I first met my wife, um, we uh, we met off of uh, Match.com. We are we are old enough that we use computers rather than you know an app for that. Right. And she wore a Princess Leia shirt the, the first time we met her, and this was 2002, so it was like the year of Attack of the Clones. It wasn't like the this prevalent you know, every, every person's wearing Star Wars merchandise like it is now. Um, so, uh, we, we discussed like, do we start with the Phantom Menace or do we start with a new hope? Because the Phantom Menace is more kid friendly. A new hope is kind of like the proper starting point and it's a slower movie for a younger kid. Um, and we ultimately went with a new hope and then we are like, okay, where do we go from here? Um, and then I had originally thought, like, I would like to try the Machete Order. Now, are, are you familiar with the Machete Order? I'm not. Okay, so the Machete Order is um, the guy who made it up. I think he made it up, like, on Tumblr or Reddit or whatever, and he called it the Machete Order because he wanted something cool. Sounding Like, there's no real, like, functional purpose behind the name <laughs> Machete. Um, but the idea is to go uh, A New Hope and then Empire, and then you flash back the prequel trilogy because – you leave the, the cliffhanger of Empire of who is lying, is it Vader or is it or is it Obi-Wan? And then you use the flashback of the of the prequel trilogy to reveal the answer to that, and then you end on Return of the Jedi. And then you can go into the sequel trilogy, obviously, if you want to. Mm-hmm. So what we did was we watched A New Hope, and she really liked it, but I think she she couldn't quite grasp like a lot of the world concepts. And, or the like, the character names like uh, other than Leia because she she'd seen Leia in the Forces of Destiny cartoons, um, but she and, and Chewbacca, but like she was kind of getting the uh, the male mm-hmm. characters confused. Mm-hmm. So we watched it I think three times and we really let it sit with her and we waited until she, we felt like she understood the universe, like who was good, who was evil, what is the Force. Um, because we didn't want to just push her through it and not have her understand because empire narratively, you know, gets a little bit deeper. Um, so when we moved, we moved to empire, um, she was able to grasp like everything that was going on. And so when we get to the part with, between Luke and Vader, like I even filmed it. I, <laughs> it was so important <laughs> to us. And, and so Vader goes, says, you know, I am your father. And I have this, amazing photo of her with just like like she's kind of like holding her mouth and just like stunned and she's just silent for a little bit um and so when we were deciding like do we do the flashback order or do we go straight on to return of the jedi uh we i asked her right after that and she goes well she's she's really confused right at the end of the movie she's like how can how can Luke's dad be Vader? I don't understand. And I said, okay, well, what do you know about this? And she goes, I thought Obi-Wan was Luke's dad's friend. And I said, okay, well, that is true. That could be true. <laughs> or Dark Vader could be Luke's dad. And so what does that mean? She goes, one of them is lying. And I said, that's right. Who do you think is lying? And she goes, Vader. Vader is a lying. Like she, she's like just convinced that Vader could you know, that there's no way Obi-Wan could be lying. Right. So we gave her a choice and we said, uh, 
okay, do you want to learn the story of Luke's dad? Um, or do you want to just go to the next movie of what, to see what happens with Luke? And she said she wanted to see Luke's dad. So we're like, okay, the decision has been made for us. Um, <laughs> and so I am a pretty staunch prequel defender. Like there's one of the articles I wrote for the Mary Sue was actually defending the prequel trilogy. Um, and I totally acknowledge that there are plenty of flaws in there. But I think from, from uh, 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 thematically and world building and there's just like the creativity involved with the prequel trilogy uh it, it's it's a, it's really amazing i just wish someone gave someone told george lucas to you know hire a screenwriter <laughs> it would have been so much better <laughs> well, I, I, like revenge of the sith though i think is is like kind of like the perfect balance between george lucas what he wanted to do and execution um, and that is in that is my number three Star Wars movie. So we go back to the Phantom Menace, um, and I actually find because Luke has always said like, oh, you know, Star Wars is for like six year olds, and watching the Phantom Menace with a five year old, um, I obviously like the jokes don't work for me, but they totally landed for her, like Jar Jar and like the Gungans and like Anakin going yippy and things like that. All of it totally worked for her uh and, and she connected with anakin so much more than luke um or leia really um and like the pod race is like her favorite thing in star wars right above all um and, and like she's asked to just re-watch that like she will get out her like little you know her little plushy chair and put on headphones to be like her helmet and she will pretend to pod race so it it, it has totally connected with her um so we, our next step is we'll probably rewatch it again. Like we're doing all of the movies where we rewatch them several times and like make sure she gets the story. And at some point in the next month or two, we'll probably get to Attack of the Clones um, because she really wants to see what happens to Anakin and to see who become, who really is Darth Vader. So she has she has no clue at all. Uh, so we are a little bit concerned about what happens with Revenge of the Sith um, because uh, we had one of our other friends say like her boys were I think seven and nine and they watched the prequel trilogy just straight after they, so they went four, five, six, one, two, three. Right. Um, and they said that like when, when Obi-Wan and Vader started fighting, like both of her boys were just totally crushed. And then when Obi-Wan just, you know, cuts up and again, they're like totally traumatized from that. So we're like, Oh, Oh, that's, that's a bit of a concern. Isn't it? <laughs> So uh, I think what we're definitely going to do is we're going to watch Attack of the Clones and then I love the Clone Wars TV show. So I will probably start selectively watching episodes of that. So she really understands the bond between Obi-Wan and Anakin. Um, and then we, depending on how things go, we may go with Revenge of the Sith or we may go just straight to Return of the Jedi because there is still the moment in Return of the Jedi where Vader confirms, you know, he is... You know, uh, or Yoda does it, and then Vader says it too. Mm. And then you have the Force Ghost of Hayden Christensen at the end. Um, and I know that's a controversial decision, but I think for if you imagine like this generation growing up with Hayden Christensen as Anakin, having gone through adventures and the Clone Wars Anakin, who looks like Hayden Christensen, mm -hmm. seeing him come in as a Force Ghost at the end rather than some random old dude who, you know, by age, shouldn't be Anakin anyways. <laughs> um, I think it's really, really powerful. 
so that is where we are in, in with Star Wars. Uh, thank you for letting me explain this for 10 minutes. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and, and also my daughter, like she has seen trailers of the sequel trilogy and the Forces of Destiny cartoons with Rey. And she can't wait to meet Ray, but I'm like, yeah, you got to figure out the other stuff first. Right. So. Yeah. It's like, let's like, let, let, let all of this get explained. Let's yeah. make sure we know it and then move on. Yeah. We were originally to try to do like one movie a week so we could take her to see Rise of Skywalker in the theaters. Um, but Rise of Skywalker is such an editing mess, especially in the first half that I actually think it would be too overwhelming for her because she gets, we have to break up um, movies usually, but in like 30 to 45 minute segments, like she sat through like frozen two and captain Marvel and like the Coco and other movies like that in the theaters. But she usually like kind of gets like, you can tell when she's getting wiggly. Right. Um, and eyes of Skywalker is so, um, I would say poorly paced at the beginning because it's just so fast in, in with plot points that are somewhat unnecessary when you think about it, mm-hmm. um, that we actually decided to back off on it. I think if, if rise of Skywalker had been like a really well-crafted, amazing movie, then we would have probably wanted to try to share that experience with her in the theater. Yeah. But because it was to me, a solid seven out of 10, rather than, you know, the hoping of like nine or 10 out of 10, then, you know, we, we decided to like, okay, I think, I don't think we're going to do that. Yeah. I, I could imagine it's just sensory overload at that point. It, it really was. And like, I remember I went into, I went into Rise of Skywalker, like being completely unspoiled. I'd seen the trailers. Um, and I just, I, I had blocked all the hashtags on social media. And at, at, since I became a parent, it's been way easier to just, to, to avoid spoilers because I just don't have the time to, to, you know, read all the websites that I used to. So I, I remember like, I think the morning of that we were going to go, I saw someone comment about like how disappointed they were, but other like one random comment on Twitter, like doesn't mean anything, you know, it's like, well, yeah, someone's going to fix everything. Mm -hmm. And then like the crawl came up and I thought, Okay, you know, like the Palpatine thing, like I, I, I don't quite agree with it because, like, you know, I knew it from the trailer, but like this is a clever setup. So let's see where this goes. And then it's just like 45 minutes of chase scenes after there. And I'm like, okay, I could see why, why <laughs> critics apparently didn't like this because this is not from a pure filmmaking perspective, this is not a good movie. <laughs> the second half, the second half of like, okay, you, you, you have you have two hours or two movies worth of story crammed into one movie. And instead of telling the story in the first half, like you just decided to make it all an action scene. Um, and, and so I'm like that, that for, for a child who's probably who's five and gets easily visually overstimulated. It was, it was a bit much. So, uh, and, and that is my rise of Skywalker critique. Like I, I could go on for like another hour about, what I would have done differently, but like the way that it ended, it's fine. I just think from, as a film perspective, it's like, it, it's, it's a bit of a mess. Yeah. Yeah. That's I, my, chance. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're good. I mean, I, I've heard the same thing from everybody that's seen it. They're just like, it, it's just kind of all over the place. It's like cinematically it's beautiful and there's amazing scenes and stuff, but like story-wise, it's just like, what? <laughs> it's like, why did they do it that way? Why can't it be a seamless transition? My biggest beef with it is like everything that happens in like the first 45 minutes or so 
really could have been summarized with one line in the crawl. Like if the crawl ended with the line, like Ray leads a desperate search to find origin of Palpatine, everything that happened in the first 45 minutes did not need to exist at all. (laughs) (laughs) And then, and you could have taken that time to like let the characters breathe rather than, you know, have them just like constantly like running from chase to chase and occasionally throwing a quip at each other. Right. Uh, So like, I, I just, I don't understand for a, for a series that like prided itself on balancing story and heart and character with the action. um, It seems really like a really strange editing decision for, for how it happened. I'm, I'm old enough that when the Phantom Menace was about to come out, I was in college and there was this thing that had leaked from Lucasfilm, apparently, because like, it was the same year that the, the Matthew Broderick Godzilla movie came out. Oh and uh, there was this internal joke that happened that was being passed around Lucasfilm, which was because uh, the, the marketing slogan for Godzilla was size does matter. And then uh, in, at Lucasfilm, they made like a, a mocking version of that that said story does matter. And <laughs> I mean, which... You know, you could debate whether the story was well executed in The Phantom Menace or not. I, I think I think from a bullet point perspective, it's actually a really cool story. It just wasn't edited very well uh, or written very well. <laughs> but, uh, but like, th- that shows you, like, you know, they were obviously trying to hit mythical archetypes and have heart and character. Um, in addition to some chase scenes, not, you know, like, chasing into chasing into chasing so okay that is tangent number three on star wars <laughs> <laughs> now see i i i kind of do agree with your daughter though because uh I, I don't remember exactly how old i was when when phantom menace came out but uh potter racing kind of was my favorite thing in that movie because then they came out with the video game on n64 and i, I yes. like played that every day like religiously until i beat it and uh, and so that's like my main that and Darth Maul were like, kind of like made that movie for me. But I was also at the point where like I wasn't going. This movie story doesn't make any sense, or this this could have been so much better. I was just like, ooh ah, because I was so young, so it didn't like bother me too much because I didn't grow up when the original trilogy came out. Um, but yeah, I, I can I can kind of see you know what your dog does. I, I would just go through there and just watch the pod racing over and over again. And Star Wars tangent number four. Um, I think <laughs> if you look at the prequel trilogy, like thematically, it's actually very, very cohesive. Um, and the world building is very, very deep in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and like even the, like the character motivations are clear. They just, it, again, it just comes down to the, the execution of George Lucas didn't hire a screenwriter. Right. Um, and, and, and so you have like these, these things that could be so easily fixed if they just like if they just punched up the dialogue just a little bit, like you really they would have been really amazing movies. And the only one where it totally comes together is Revenge of the Sith. But the Clone Wars, you had Dave Filoni like taking the sandbox that Lucas had and all of these thematic ideas that Lucas wanted to tell, um, and you just had a way better writer overseeing it. <laughs> and that's why the Clone Wars is so good. Mm-hmm. All right, so we uh, we definitely got some Star Wars chat out of the way, so I think we can breathe now. <laughs> um, hey, but you know I'm always up for Star Wars chat, so don't so don't uh, don't don't be wary. But uh, so now, kind of back into this podcast of so being being about writing. Uh, can you tell me a little bit uh, about what you did prior to writing? Um, so I 
I before I started writing fiction, well, I did fiction in college. Um, I, I took a creative writing class, and um, I, I've talked about it in other interviews. Um, so it's all over the web that I'm associated with. My my creative writing teacher uh, is now a, an executive at Simon and Schuster. Her name is Wendy Sheenan. And she uh, encouraged me to keep writing after I took that class. She said that um, she asked me to change majors. And I was an engineering major with three, three and a half years of classes under my belt. And I'm like, I, I can't do that. Um, but uh, so she said, I keep writing. And then uh, after I got with my agent, we got in contact. And she's been kind of like a cheerleader uh, for, my, for my career. But uh, between, between when I graduated college um, I started doing freelance sports writing. It was the kind of like the early days of sports writing on the web. So it was like everyone was using Blogspot at the time. Um, and then there was a group of us that kind of emerged out of it and were kind of like drafted into the big leagues. Um, so like I went from there to um, to Fox Sports and managing the site on SB Nation. Uh, when when they were more like a, I guess, a, a nascent corporate a startup as opposed to just like a content machine that they are now. Mm. Um, so I did Fox sports. Um, I contributed occasional pieces to NHL.com and Yahoo sports. Um, and, and it was interesting. It's almost like with, with the fiction writers that I started out with all of the people that I knew who were blogging at that, at the start of that time, like the ones that stuck with it actually wound up with positions like at bigger spots, like Lyle Richardson is still with the hockey news. James Myrtle was with the, uh, the Globe and Mail. And now he's um, like basically in charge of the hockey division at the athletic and uh, people like that. Greg Wyshynski on ESP, like he's on ESPN TV. Now. <laughs> uh, so it, 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 it's very similar to all the writers, all the fiction writers that I started critiquing with around like 2009, 2010 all of us that just stuck with it, like, cause some of us just, some of them dropped off, you know, they just, they had enough and got frustrated and just let it go. But the ones that just kept coming up with new idea after new idea and querying agents every time, like they got agents, not all of them have sold, but they've all got agents mm-hmm. um, and various levels of success too. Like some of them have really broken out and some of them got like their nice contracts and, you know, they're just, they're, they're, comfortably mid list like I am. Uh, so it's, it, I think it's, it's a, it goes to show that like, you know, if you really love something and you just kind of keep plugging away at it, like for most things, you will eventually find the success you're looking for. You just got to keep at it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So that's my life tips tangent. Of <laughs> night. Uh, so, so I saw that you uh, had a chance to interview Wayne Gretzky. Tell me a little bit about that. Be- being a big hockey fan myself, um, it, it was it was very controlled, um, and it was done over email with the Coyotes PR person. Um, <laughs> so, it, 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 there wasn't much about it. Was when I think it was his second year as Coyotes coach because his first year, if I were, this is all off memory, but mm-hmm. I think his first year was just like a total disaster, and then the second year. They had, um, they, I think they started out of the gate pretty hot and like they had a noticeably different playing style where like they, and, and so my questions were basically about that. Like what were his, like, like how did he, you know, find an identity for the team and like what strategic changes did they make to their, to their offensive style and things like that. But it was all very controlled. Um, like I had also talked with several different Coyotes players, just like uh, I was doing a series 
on um on uh players and coaches and stuff who really like music because I'm I'm a big music person. And so for that, like I actually got on the phone with Sean Burke and we talked guitars for like an hour and it was awesome. <laughs> but Gretzky was very, very PR controlled. Ah. Uh. I, I, I kind of figured he might be <laughs> with, with <Yeah>. you know, <laughs> that name. <laughs> I, I, like when I submitted the pitch to it, I was surprised that they, they even did it. You know, I was like, you know, I'm just some guy with like a couple of bylines on Fox shooting my shot. And then they're like, oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think it's because he was with the Coyotes. Uh, like if 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 he had been coaching, you know, like the Rangers or the Maple Leafs or a big market, like they would not have given me the time of day. <laughs> Uh, yeah, or you know, like in Detroit, you know, something like that, and just like, yeah, ah, who is this guy? Nah, you know, brush, brush you to the side. Yeah. <laughs> um. Well, awesome. So, um, kind of back to writing. So, do you have any certain influences that kind of spurred you to start writing, or was it just a, a love for books that got you into writing, uh, or were there specific uh, authors that you read that you're like, I kind of want to emulate them or try to be like them? I, I think um, so. In my 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 college application essay, um, I did this thing where, like, I remember my, my English teacher at the time was saying, like, try to come up with something unique. Don't just like write an essay about yourself. Um, and I had this idea where I I wrote uh, three versions of the essay all in different voices. Um, and because uh, I, I loved reading Anne Rice vampire books when I was a teen and in college until they got, became not that good, right. <laughs> which is around the, the fifth book. Um, <laughs> but like, I, I still do. Like I will I go back and um, if I need what I feel like a lesson in atmospherics and description, um, I will reread like Interview with the Vampire because I think she Anne Rice does a really really good job with that and it, like in setting an environment and creating a mood. Uh, so I wrote um, I wrote intentionally like a, a little bio about myself, but like that and framed it as like oh I'm you know I'm I'm going to just try to emulate some of my favorite things. Um, and I got into college, so I guess that worked. But. Uh, so that was like one of the the first ways I think I I started to see that it could be more than just about straight plot telling that that atmosphere could really be about something. Um, and then when I read High Fidelity by Nick Hornby, uh, that I had seen the movie first and it really connected with me because as like a really big snobby indie music fan, like I totally you know kind of identified with that. And then I read the book. And the book had such a really strong voice. It was one of the first times that like, I really saw that. And then I read about a boy after that. And I thought, I would like to try this. Like I could, I could see like kind of the, the, the coming together of voice and plot and character. Mm-hmm. So I, I would say like, those were like the two biggest touchstones uh, growing up. I gotcha. Um, so when you're writing, where do you typically find yourself? Are you at home? Do you do the, uh, I go to Starbucks and write on my laptop and your type on my laptop, whatever. Or do you, do you have a specific space that you like to write in? Does it have to be super quiet? <laughs> it has to be quiet. Yeah, that, that's important. And, and so because of that, um, so I have a five-year-old at home who is very loud. Uh, so I cannot write around her. I can answer like, emails from my agent or my editor around her, but I cannot like sit down and write a scene. Um, and so because of that time is always really, really like spare. Mm-hmm. So I, I've actually trained myself to write on my phone. Um, so one of the other 
ways that I, one of the other things that I write is um, I'm a trained technical writer and, and copywriter. Um, and so I did a lot of that freelance before taking a full-time position um, about a year ago. Um, and so like writing those freelance while, uh, while working like a different, you know, a corporate job, um, I would, uh, I, I was always pressed for time and, and I would sneak in like writing drafts on my phone during meetings and things like that were, you know, corporate meetings, like most of the time, no one needs to be there. <laughs> I mean, so, so you might as well, you know, make use of that time. Right. So I, I trained myself to, to write on Google docs on my, on my phone. And so now, um, that it's really good to have that muscle developed because now, uh, when like, when I get pockets of time, like if I have, if I'm early to pick up my daughter and, I have 20 minutes, I can edit a scene or I can like dash out like just a quick bit of dialogue or something like that as it's in my head, because I won't get, you know, a good like four or five hour writing session. It just doesn't happen. Right. Um, except like on the weekend and we have to plan for it. Um, <laughs> so I, I write wherever I can, whenever I can, yeah, which means I have sacrificed video games and TV, which totally sucks. Oh man. I don't know if I could do it. <laughs> You know, I say that and I just, uh, so, so we moved into a new house uh, a little over a year and a half ago. And uh, I told my wife, the, the only thing I want in this new house is to have my own office. And so I got the office, got the built-in bookshelves and all that stuff. I was like, all right, well, I also need uh, a TV and like I can move my consoles in there. And she was like, okay, well, you figure out how to do that and you can do it. So I bought this like entertainment console, got a TV, got it all set up, got all my consoles set up in here. And like, this is say a month ago and I play, I probably played for like a straight week. And then every time I walk in here, I go, do I really want to play something? <laughs> it's like when I have the time to do it, I always find something else to do. I don't, I don't know if yeah. that just comes with age, but I always, it's like a nostalgia thing. Like every, every now and then I'm like, gosh, I really wish I could play that. And I'm like, Oh wait, I can. <laughs> yeah. I, I, for me, it's, it's like, if uh, like if my daughter goes to bed early and like if uh, um you know if my wife and I are not you know like if she goes to bed early or if she's reading a book or whatever and I'm like what am I gonna do for the evening uh, I can I can play a game that I've been meaning to play or I can you know actually get some writing done and usually especially if I'm on like I'm on contract right now and so I'm gonna be hitting revision cycle for my third book uh, starting next week. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like time is precious and I have immense work ethic guilt. So, you know, like a lot of that stuff gets sacrificed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I can completely imagine. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, my wife and I are actually having our first in June. Uh, we're having a girl. Oh, and uh, and so, so now I, I get to listen back to the first 20 minutes of our chat and I can I can get her into Star Wars, too. And so we can, we can share that bond now. <laughs> we'll park that for later. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I'm trying to get all the things that, you know, I, I would have done, say, prior to marriage and now even during marriage before we have a child, because then that all that time is just devoted to her, at least until she falls asleep. And then maybe I can get some sleep. But um, that's why I've kind of gotten into audiobooks like super hard lately, um, because oh, yeah. I've kind of I've kind of tuned myself into it now because I can listen to them at work, especially with blogging, because if I'm going to finish books, I've got to be able to, <laughs> to get these books read somehow. 
Um, and yeah. so it's kind of become a huge, a huge help, but, uh, I, you're sitting there talking about writing on your phone. Oh my gosh. I, I don't know if I could do that. I, I text enough, but I don't know if I could sit there I get and the reaction through. quite a bit um, from other writers and it is purely a function of necessity. You know, it's like I have someone else told me that they carry around a, um, like a foldable Bluetooth keyboard. Mm-hmm. Um, and like for me, like I, I get like that, but that still requires like a little bit of like preparation right. and, you know, you're still unfolding like this piece of equipment. Whereas like if it's, if you can type on your phone on the app, then it is literally anywhere, anytime you have free time, you can do it. Right. Yeah. And it's, and it's just saved in that one spot. So you can stop where you are, get home and then get back on the computer and start or, or whatever. I mean, it makes sense. I just, you know, with with such a small screen and, you know, I, I fat thumb so many things when I'm texting or whatever. I just don't know. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a skill. You have to develop it. Right, right. I can, I can imagine. So so tell me a little bit about your writing process. Um, I, I, I found out this term uh, a couple of weeks ago when I was talking to CJ Tudor. Um, she talks about being a plotter or a pantser. What do you, mm-hmm. what do you consider yourself? I, I lean towards plotter. Um, so my writing process, um, which has evolved over time as, as I've found what's worked for me, but I usually the way what I'll start is um, there's a, there's a book called save the cat. It's a screenwriting book that basically takes the three act structure and assigns specific beats to it. Um, and it's very similar. If you know the Joseph Campbell journey of the, the hero's journey thing, mm-hmm. it's very, very similar to that. Um, and so what I usually do is like, once I get an idea, I, I try to do a save the cat beat sheet from a very top level perspective. And if it feels like it's working, then I will try to write the first act of it. Um, I might do some experimental scenes of like key beats that I, there was this really great piece of advice. I forget who told, who said it, but they, they suggested if you, uh, if you're feeling stuck, put your characters in like the most important scenes in the book. You don't have to keep it. You know, you can totally rewrite them later, but put them in these extreme circumstances and their voices will naturally come out. Um, And so like, I might do a little bit of developmental work like that, but then the goal really is to like write the first act. Um, And I write in layers. So the first layer is pretty much just like dialogue. It's some minimal prose and stage direction and a lot of placeholders. Um, And then the second pass at that will be like adding actual prose, but it's still kind of shitty. And then the third pass is where it's like, okay, I've smoothed it out. I've been with these characters enough that I understand their voices and I understand the world. And then from there, if I feel like the first act is working, like I might send it to some friends to read. Mm -hmm. If I feel like it's working um, and then I can, uh, well, in, in this case, like that's how I sold book three. Um, was I, I did a, a first half that way. And that's like, uh, I'm sending a proposal for book four <clears throat> to my editor pretty soon. Um, and that's the model that I'm working at. Cause I personally find that writing the second half, if you know the characters and you have a plot, um, and like a synopsis already kind of hammered out the mm-hmm. second half for me is just like sprinting downhill. Like everything's already there. The words just need to pop up. And I'm not so uh, tied to the outline that like, I will happily, like if I just think like, Oh, what if they turned left instead of turned right? 
mm-hmm. uh, and explore that. Like I, I will adapt the story to it um, if it works. Um, but having having uh, an outline, I feel like it gives me a guidepost where I can kind of work in this way. I have some friends who like they sit down and they write beautiful prose starting from chapter one, and it takes them longer than me, but they do one pass and they're basically done. Mm-hmm. I can't do that. I I, I just it's it, even before I had a kid and it was pressed for time, like my brain just kind of works in a more mechanical way. Yeah. Yeah. I see that I, I've tried a few times to, to start a novel and I, and I'm kind of like your friends where I have to have beautiful poetic prose at the very beginning. And it, it's probably what's my down. What is my downfall <laughs> is that I like, I feel like it has to be perfection right off instead of just, writing for writer's sake and then going back and reading through it and see if it actually makes any sense or gels. So I find editing and revising much more satisfying than the initial draft. The initial draft is the hardest thing yeah. for me. I, I, and my goal really is get to the end and then you can start to like, see if it actually works. Um, but like, so, so I like it's, you know, everyone does it differently, but if, if you're having trouble doing this start to finish thing, then sprint to the end and then fill in the gaps later. Right. Right. Um, so, uh, obviously I'm, I'm fairly new to, to your works. Um, so, so Justine had reached out to me, uh, I guess it was the end of last year, uh, with a beginning at the end. And, um, I know you did have a novel prior to that called here and now and then, would you mind telling me and the audience a little bit about your first book? Yeah, so my, my first book, <clears throat> it's a time travel father-daughter story, um, and it's about a, a time-traveling secret agent who comes from the year 2142, <clears throat> and he gets stuck in the 90s after he finishes an assignment, and his rescue is supposed to pull him back, and they don't. And after a while, he's he does what I think um, most of us would do is you know, he, he decides to settle down and live his life. Um, and so he gets a job, he, you know, he meets someone that he loves and he gets married and they have a daughter. Um, and then uh, like 17 years later, his rescue finally arrives and they tell him that he has created a paradox with his daughter and they have to pull him back to 2142 where he's reunited with the family that he started to forget, um, for time travel reasons. Um, and, uh, and the, the, the story takes place, um, kind of like half in the future, half in the present. Um, and it's about him trying to find a balance of this and then uh, trying to rescue his daughter when she is accidentally erased from history. I guess that's kind of a spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it sounds fantastic. I mean, I, I, um, I actually grabbed it, I guess, probably about a month or so ago when it came across on uh, Chirp, which is uh, like book books, <laughs> oh, yes, audiobooks. Yeah. And, um, and, and so I've, I've got it. So it's probably gonna be one of my next listens just based on, you know, based on what you just said, but also based off the synopsis I've seen and, uh, some of the other, uh, book reviewers that I follow, like on Goodreads and stuff, I've seen some of the reviews. So, it, so that definitely sounds right up my alley. I haven't read many time travel novels here recently, so it's, it's time for a palate cleanser. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. So, um, okay. So now on to a beginning at the end. So this just released not too long ago, but what, what a couple of weeks ago, um, yeah, two weeks ago. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and so far you've got, got some pretty good feedback. Like I said, uh, my co-reviewer, co-reviewer Jason, uh, really enjoyed it. Uh, you know, sent a review over and I think he also reviewed here now and then, but, 
Uh, so tell, tell everybody a little bit about uh, your new novel and kind of what we can expect in it. So uh, a beginning at the end is is post-apocalyptic, but it's different than most post-apocalyptic stories because a lot of them take place either in like the immediate outbreak where everyone's just kind of killing each other when they learn to survive, or it takes place like a hundred years after the outbreak and everything has changed and generations have adapted to it. This takes place six years after an, uh, an outbreak in a quarantine from a pandemic. And it is as the quarantine is ending and society is restructuring itself. And we follow uh, three adults and one child. Um, we have like a single dad and his young daughter, we have a, a wedding planner and we have a pop star, a former pop star in hiding and their lives start to intertwine as the threats of a, of a new pandemic uh, starts to make the rumor mill. Uh, and so the idea behind it was I, I wanted to, I love the idea of everyone kind of having like this um, everyone in the world is suffering from like the same trauma and how are they going to deal with it? I think that's one of the things that like never really gets addressed when you see apocalyptic fiction. It's really just like everyone's either really angry and killing each other or like, you know, they're just like not really talking about like all the horrible things that they've seen. So I thought it, there was a really interesting space to play in there. Yeah. And, you know, having just read it, I mean, I, I can agree that it's it's not one of those, you know, a zombie novels or, you know, something along those lines. So it's not a, a 28 days later. It's not a girl with all the gifts from MR Carey. It's, you know, it's, it's more of a, you know, lighthearted, but also, Hey, this all freaking happened. And we're trying to, trying to basically uh, pull together and figure out how to, to rebuild and it's it's got a lot of heart in it, which you don't see a lot in post apocalyptic fiction. Um, at least nowadays, you don't you don't you don't see any uh, people kind of banding together and trying to accomplish one goal. You see people kind of spread out in little groups and do their own thing. Um, now I have to ask: did, did you expect the coronavirus to be a thing after your book released? <laughs> No, you know, it, it was like when uh, it was like in succession, there was like first the Australian wildfires and then there was like the missile attack in in uh, Iran. And then there's like the coronavirus. And there was like everyone is like a sign of the like impending apocalypse. So as each thing happened, like, it kind of like everyone would message me and be like, hey, what a great time to be promoting a post-apocalyptic book. And then it's like, you know, it's going from like something that's not in my story to like gradually something that is in my story. And even, right. even today um, I was in Starbucks uh, working and uh, there was, I was sitting next to these two people and one guy's coughing. And then the woman next to us just like yells at him for not like wearing a mask or covering <laughs> his mouth. And then they just start yelling at each other. I'm like, Oh my God, I'm writing the future. This is terrible. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. Cause I was, uh, just scrolling through my spam folder on Yahoo, and it says uh, the CDC has already reported the sixth case in the U.S. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? So, so way to go. You freaking foretold what's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. so, so if anyone needs a nonfiction manual on how to reboot your life after the pandemic, I have a book for you. <laughs> So, so, you know, the Taylor Swifts of the world, if you need to know how to become an ex-pop star. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Oh my gosh. But yeah, I, I, um, I, I really enjoyed it. Like I said, it, it's, it's unlike any of the post-apocalyptic fiction I've read. Um, you know, especially because like I said, m- most of the stuff that I read deals with more of a, uh, you know, like I said, kind of like a zombie-ish type apocalypse where it's just death and survival. Uh, whereas yeah. yours is real people trying to live their normal lives while still having this, you know, while, while being in quarantine and then right after and trying to kind of get away from their old self and start anew. Um, and, and like I said, it, it's, uh, it's, it's very lighthearted, but it's also very emotional. Um, you know, just, just with the three different storylines and how they all kind of intertwine together. Um, so it's, it's definitely one I recommend everybody check out. Yes, please buy it <laughs> before, <laughs> before we go into quarantine for real. Right. <laughs> okay. So, so tell me, uh, obviously post-apocalyptic fiction, time travel fiction, uh, why, I guess, science fiction is it, is it just because of like what you grew up reading? Is that, is that why you chose to write in that genre? Is that a genre you're going to continue to write in? Yeah, I think so. Like actually if like the way that I came up across this is I, I've always been a sci-fi person. Um, it's really just been like everything to me growing up. Um, and it's funny because like, I'm not really a fantasy person though. I did really enjoy the Witcher. Uh, my wife is a huge fantasy person and sci-fi person. And so she tried to get me to read like uh, some of the, like, like the D and D like, Dritz the Dark Elf novels and things like that. And like, I couldn't even play Dragon Age. Like I just, it just doesn't do it for me. But then you give me Mass Effect and it's like the greatest thing that I've ever played. So <laughs> that's just, sci-fi is, has just always done it for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a writer, I never felt like I could write the epic stories that you typically see in sci-fi. Like mine are very character driven. Um, and so it was my critique partner. Uh, I was writing contemporary um, you know, relationship stories. And my, I was complaining to my critique partner that I kind of found it boring. And she said, she suggested that I try just putting, you know, those stories in the backdrops that I really love. Um, and at the time I didn't think I would get an agent with it, but I'm really lucky in that like the past five years or so, like the market has really taken to kind of blending that into a speculative area. I gotcha. I gotcha. Hey, and, and I'm all about some some some, some science or some you know some sci-fi video games and movies and stuff. I, I, I'm huge on like Fallout. That's like one of my favorite games of all time. So oh, my 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 wife, I am literally in our bedroom. We have a giant Fallout print like that I'm staring at right now. <laughs> so it, my wife played it in the '90s, and then like when Fallout Three came out, it was like the biggest thing for her. So that, that's her favorite franchise. Okay, all right, yeah. I, I mean, I, I love Bethesda, so um, and and I know they've got the Outer Worlds out now, which I guess would be you know more the science fictiony, not really post-apocalyptic as much, um, which I haven't I haven't played yet, but I've I've been meaning to get to. Um, that's MQ. If I ever like, I played like two hours of it, and if, like when I have time, that's kind of like one of my rewards to myself. Mm-hmm. Uh, my wife blew through it in about a month, and she said it's like if you can combine Bioshock, uh, Dragon Age, and uh, Fallout into one game. So, that's, so she she loved it, and she said that the only reason she hasn't done the final quest is because she doesn't want it to be over. <laughs> she wants to wait <laughs> for there to be. 
DLC waiting for her afterwards, and then she will finish it. All right, okay. So, so you see, you sold me right there. So now I'm going to get to it. So, yeah. <laughs> so, Tony, um, obviously, being a writer, uh, you probably get sent books. Uh, you probably get asked to do blurbs. But, you know, I, I've been told by many writers that they just really don't have time to read. But has there been anything recently that you've read that you'd recommend or any authors that you think need a boost and uh, should definitely have some more readership? Well, I, I'm often asked um, because people people will find my books as like you know the science fiction with feelings uh, books, and uh, so they like if they like it, they often ask like, well, who else writes like this? So uh, there's a few that I always kind of group together, and, and you know we're all we're all friends because we're the we get asked to blurb each other's books <laughs> <laughs> because we're all kind of in the same vein. So there's a really really great post apocalyptic book called The Book of M by Pun Shepherd, uh, and it's it is um similar in structure to my book with like multiple points of view and um like news reports and interstitial stories uh, put in there but there's magic in her apocalypse um it's about uh, an apocalypse that happens because for some reason people start losing their memories um, and it's tied into losing your shadow and so uh, so there's these magic elements to it that make it different from a lot of post-apocalyptic books. Um, another thing that I think if if you like my stuff, there's this really, really unique and awesome book called Famous Men Who Never Lived. And it's by a writer named Kay, the letter K, uh, Chess. And uh, in her story, it's about um, there is a world that is dying due to uh, uh, like nuclear war. And as the world is coming to a collapse, they def- uh, the, the, the civilization creates a portal to our world. Hmm. And so the book takes place after it follows people who have immigrated from that world to this world. And it's, it's a really symbolic book about immigration and adapting to a new culture. And what are the things that you carry with you, like the importance of like art and literature and, and the things that really mean something with you, how can you bring those into a completely different environment? It, it, it was some really, really cool world building too. So uh, th- those are the two books that I often recommend if, uh, if people like my books. It, it, um, it's um, the other book that I just think uh, has been one of my favorite reads of the past few years. And I, I just recommend to everyone. <clears throat> it's called An Unkindness of Magicians by Cat Howard. Um, and it, it typically wouldn't be in my wheelhouse, but it's so good that it really should be and everyone should read it. It's it's like modern day New York City and you kind of have like these these houses of magicians like Harry Potter, mm-hmm. except every 10 years they have duels to the death. Um, so, and they're kind of operating like crime syndicates. And then like the main protagonist is like driven by revenge, like kind of like Kill Bill. Mm-hmm. And so it's just... It's really, really good. <laughs> I recommend everyone read it. Okay, absolutely. Well, I have added those to my list, so I'll definitely uh, be getting to it. I've actually had um, the book of M for 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 a hot minute, so I definitely need to get to it because um, I've yeah, heard great. some great things about it. So, um, so, so tell me, uh, what are you working on now? Obviously, you just had a book release. Uh, I think I saw on Goodreads you've got one coming out in 2021. So, can you tell us a little bit about it? Yeah, it's called. Uh, it, it, it takes a little bit of a lighter tone, so there's less, way less death and emotional suffering <laughs> than my first two books. It's called "We Could Be Heroes," um, and it's a story about 
a superhero and a supervillain who accidentally meet up in an anonymous support group. And once they discover each other's identities, rather than fight each other, they decide to team up and they become friends and they, they dig to discover how they got their powers. Uh, so it's really inspired by, uh, I, I tend to, um, I get these sparks of inspiration from the media that I'm watching or reading at the time. And we were watching a lot of like Jessica Jones and Daredevil and Luke Cage. Uh, and I love the way that like those series took these, you know, these superheroes, but they really, really grounded them in reality. <clears throat> and so that's where the spark of this, uh, uh, of this book came from. So that's scheduled for as of now, January, 2021. And around the summertime, we will probably be talking a lot about it. That's when we're going to get advanced copies and a cover and all that stuff. Awesome. Awesome. And I have to say with the title, all, all I can think of is the song by the wallflowers. I know it's not the original, but that's the one I grew up on. <laughs> so. <laughs> so you definitely have to have some lyrics. <laughs> uh, so like when, when it was originally titled uh, anonymous and then my, I turned it into my agent and um, he made a joke of like, Oh yeah, like we should call it. We could be heroes, and I'm like, yeah, that would be great. Except you know, we probably get the the shit sued out of us by the Bowie estate. Right. And he goes, oh no, you you can title, you, you can use titles. You just can't quote. And I like we emailed my editor right away. I'm like, hey, on the proposal, we're changing the title. <laughs> so that's what I came about. Gotta say, yeah, I, it's it's good that you thought about that ahead of time. That oh no, that might not be a good idea. <laughs> Yeah. I feel like some people are just being impulsive and be like, no, we're going with it. Let's go. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Well, Mike, uh, it, it's been a phenomenal chat. Uh, obviously, we've talked about your books. We've talked about Star Wars, uh, what to like and what not to like, uh, how you actually should watch the Star Wars movies in order. <laughs> and, uh, Everyone should watch the Clone Wars because the Clone Wars is amazing. Exactly. Exactly. And then uh, about how your book brought about the coronavirus. So, I mean, it's been a really yeah. – inspirational chat <laughs> epic conversation as <laughs> <laughs> absolutely but but seriously uh, i really appreciate you being on uh beginning at the end's a phenomenal novel for anybody that's looking for a for a new post-apocalyptic novel uh just like i said came out a couple weeks ago from harper uh but as far as mike goes you can find him on twitter and instagram at mike chin writer and you can also find his website it's www.mikechinbooks.com where you can find out, find out a little bit more about him, his books, uh, and pretty much anything else about Mike that you probably need to know. <laughs> or maybe some of the photos you might not want to know. <laughs> What's that? It's a lot of photos of my dog on social media. Hey, there's so if, you, if you like adorable dogs, then then you should follow me on Twitter. <laughs> See, I need to start doing that more. I've got I've got two rescues and then uh, a, a, a one-year-old corgi, so I need to start posting more dog pics. Maybe I'll start doing dog book pics, and that'll just be like what I'm known for. <laughs> that will that will actually get a lot of <laughs> a lot of attention. Especially I used to have a corgi and she she died a few years ago, but she was uh like I would post with her like doing different things and like everyone loves the corgi. They're the best dogs, right? Except for the shedding. Right. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Except for the, except for the shed, the excessive shedding for about three or four months, and, but they're perfect. Otherwise. <laughs> yeah. So I think what I'm going to do is tomorrow on, uh, on Instagram, I'm going to post uh, uh, the, the cover of uh, a beginning at the end with my corgi puppy and then tag oh, in the podcast and just, 
just break the internet. <laughs> that would be fantastic. I totally appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, well, thanks again, guys. Uh, definitely go out, uh, check out Mike Chen's uh, books. Like I said, Here and Now and Then has been out for a little bit, and then a beginning at the end. Like I said, it came out two weeks ago. Uh, and obviously, like you said, he's got another book coming out next January as of right now, but definitely in 2021. But, Mike, thanks again for uh, for coming on and chat, and let's do this again. Yep, maybe next year for the, for the next book release. Thank yeah, you so that, much. That, that'd be fantastic. Thanks again. Thanks for tuning in to episode 12 of Authors on the Podcast Talking Books. Hope you all enjoyed my chat with author Mike Chen. Tune in next week when I talk to horror author Keelan Patrick Burke. We'll talk a little bit about some of his older novels like Sour Candy, uh, which actually got me back into reading horror uh, or the genre of horror. But we'll also talk about a few of his newer novels like Blanky and We Live Inside Your Eyes, which are absolutely phenomenal. Uh, We'll also talk a little bit about his... uh, cover design, uh, which is Elder Lemon Designs. He does some phenomenal book covers for some great horror writers out there, so we'll talk definitely about those. Also, next week, I'll be talking to fantasy author Peter McLean. Uh, He actually is currently in the middle of writing the War for the Rose Throne series. Uh, Priest of Bones and Priest of Lies are the first two books that have been released from Ace, which is uh, under Penguin Random House. We'll also talk a little bit about uh, some of his older books, and what is to come in those series. But guys, thank you again for tuning in to these episodes. I hope y'all are enjoying them as much as I enjoy recording them uh, and continue coming back. We're going to have some great more uh, authors coming up. Thanks. <music>